Early in the morning of Halloween 1981, 76-year-old sister Tadea Benz was found dead, naked on the floor of her room in the St. Francis Convent in Amarillo, Texas. She had missed Saturday morning mass, something she rarely did, and out of concern, Sister Martinez went off to check on her. When she found her, they all believed that she must have fallen after getting out of the shower or while getting up that morning. So Sister Martinez and four other nuns wrapped Sister Benz in a sheet and cleaned up blood found near her body. Later that morning, Sister Florentine found a broken window in the community room with the slit cut into the screen. And it was then that they decided to call the police. Still not about the death of Sister Benz, but about the break-in. When the officers came to investigate the scene of that particular crime, they overheard a conversation about Sister Benz's death and that's when they decided to open an investigation into her death as well. As it turned out, Sister Benz had not fallen and died as a result of her fall, but had been raped, beaten, and strangled. I'm your host, Catherine, and this is Murder in Mediumship. Before we dive into the death of Sister Benz, and even more so the boy who was accused of her brutal death, I want to take a moment and let everyone know that my Intuitive Development 101 class is now open for enrollment. It begins on October 19th and will be held during the day this time at 1130 Eastern Standard Time. If you can't make the live class, then no worries. The recording will be sent out after each class anyway. No pressure to make it to each one. Also, this is still on a sliding skill basis, but there are only a few spots available at the $99 option this time around. I'm really excited and eager to introduce basic level intuition and education to another group of those who are really all ready to learn about it. For those of you who have been through this course already, Patreon officially has two more tiers, intuitively aligned both basic and the premium level. The premium level includes all things that are available through Murder and Mediumship Patreon experience, as well as one psychic circle each month. If you're uninterested in, say, the murderous interviews or the journal prompts, the weekly card polls then you can join at the basic level and attend only the psychic circle for practice. And we're officially on Discord now. So join the running conversation for any pledge amount via Patreon. Discord chat is available to every single Patreon tier. And I'm so, so, so here for this conversation. It's been a great conversation thread so far where we dive into all things woo-woo and true crime in real time. Now back to the gory details. Just a few months prior, another elderly woman had been found dead in her home. Her name was Narn Box Bryson, and Bryson had also been raped, beaten, and strangled. In both murders, the screen had been cut, and oddly, there was a crumpled up white t-shirt left near the body of each elderly woman. Witnesses had claimed to have seen a darker-skinned man who was identified as, quote, possibly Cuban, end quote, had been seen leaving the area after both murders. The possibly Cuban seemed a little oddly specific to me, so I did a little bit more digging. And brief history lesson here, 
Between April and September of 1980, 125,000 Cubans came to Florida via boat. I won't get too far into this, but Fidel Castro had opened the port of El Mario to anyone who wanted to leave Cuba, and a large number of those who came in 1980 were criminals and mentally ill individuals. They were sent as an act of aggression to the United States after a series of intellectual and highly educated Cubans came over. Um, Fidel Castro kind of said, you know what, if you're going to take some of our best, we're going to send you some of our worst. So many of these immigrants stayed in Miami, but others were bused to other states. And Amarillo, Texas happened to be one of the safety cities for the Cuban criminals who came during that time. All of the physical evidence, the DA agreed, pointed to the same killer, having been having murdered both Sister Benz and Ms. Bryson. A security guard for St. Francis Convent even reported having seen a darker-skinned man hiding in the bushes at the convent on the evening of Sister Benz's death, but the man had run off before he could be detained. That same day, a man with a heavy Hispanic accent had called the convent asking to speak to a priest about his sexual desires. Because law enforcement now suspected that the killer was Cuban, they gathered every single Cuban in Amarillo who had migrated from Miami. They were looking to verify their location the night of both murders and took hair and blood samples as well as fingerprints from every single one of them. This seems pretty freaking unconstitutional to me, but we're not going to focus on how much profiling was just done here. We're, we're going to continue with the story, but seriously, <laughs> what? After gathering all of the Cubans together, they turned their focus to two men in particular, Fernando Felipez Flores and Leontio Perez Reda. Both men had been caught looking into the windows of elderly women like peeping toms and were charged with criminal trespassing. The timing was so perfect too because they had been charged between July of 81 when Bryson was found murdered and October of 81 when Sister Benz was found murdered. There had even been a third victim whose name I could not find, but she was in a coma from her attack and unable to give police any information as she couldn't remember the attack. The DA and the task force assigned to these murders were thoroughly convinced that the same person had murdered these women and that they were fairly certain that this person was Fernando Flores. They had sent his prints, the fibers, and the hair from the scene off to the FBI to be tested and the FBI unfortunately returned with the bad news that none of it matched Flores. Good for Flores, bad for the investigation, right? The only logical step was clearly for them to contact a psychic. (laughs) And look, yes, I'm being sarcastic here. And I know that's super ironic. I get what this show is about, but it blows my mind how poorly this case is being handled by law enforcement. And what this psychic leads them to is infuriating. Inez, quote, Bubbles Patterson, who had helped the police department with a few other cases prior to the murder of Sister Benz, told law enforcement that she had a dream about a man who was 5'11", thin, small-framed, but muscular, with a, quote, a blinking face and large ears. She was able to give them his address, which they printed in the newspaper. Like, what? I mean, anyone could have had some vigilante justice, and he hadn't even been arrested at this point. And it was reported, or he had been arrested, but it was like his address was reported like 
anyone could have gone over there to harass his family, anything like that. Anyway, they reported that his name, she had said that his name was Mr. Clyde. Her husband, from what I can tell, Mr. Bubbles, Mr. Patterson, was a lousy drug trafficker. And by lousy, I mean he was bad at trafficking drugs and was caught more than once and made frequent deals with the cops to get out of charges. So they were already familiar with him. Anyway, Bubbles and her husband were no strangers to law enforcement. And this is worth noting because what she saw wasn't necessarily wrong, but she misinterpreted it. I believe that what she saw was who they would eventually pin the murder on, not who the killer actually was. Information isn't always for us as psychics and as mediums to interpret, but rather for us to relay and for the receiver to do with as they see and feel fit. However, the police took the words of Bubbles and went to the address that she had given them. There, they found a tall, thin, 17-year-old boy with a muscular body, large ears, and an Abe Lincoln face, who had a dog in his backyard. The dog's name was Mr. Clyde. And I can see how this would be immediately like, okay, we've got this guy. But you've got to have some sort of physical evidence. I mean, come on, or some sort of reason other than what a psychic said to go on here. It's just, it, it doesn't feel to me like an appropriate thing to do to take the word of someone who is seeing visions that are not concrete evidence. This is, and I've said it before on here, psychics are not here to solve. They are here to assist. And I feel like they took what she said as the written word and they did nothing with it other than have it be, it was literal. And they went and they arrested him basically. So she drove them straight to an innocent man, the second main victim in our story today. The boy who lived with his dog, Clyde, at 4000 Northeast 18th Street in Amarillo, Texas, was Johnny Frank Garrett, a developmentally slow, petty criminal with a terrible childhood and no money to defend himself. And we know that money talks. The Texas DA quickly abandoned the idea that the same person was involved in both the deaths of Sister Benz and Miss Bryson and narrowed in on Garrett being responsible for the death of Sister Benz. But why? They were so sure it made so much sense that it had to be the same person. He lived across the street from the convent, and he was seen outside smacking his bushes with a stick on Halloween night. And because Bubbles said so, Johnny Frank Garrett is a victim in this story, and his story breaks my heart. Born on December 24th, 1963, Garrett didn't have it easy at all. He grew up in a poor community, made bad grades in high school, and didn't have too many friends. As a child, and trigger warning here, as a child, he was sexually abused by two of his stepfathers and even made to perform in a child pornography film by one of them. The priest interviewed in the documentary, The Last Word, which I highly recommend, have had trouble finding actually, um, and the YouTube version of it that I found lost audio a couple of times. The last word about Johnny Frank Garrett in this documentary, they share that the boy had been prostituted to other men by his stepdad and burned all over his body by them as well with cigarettes. By the sixth grade, according to his mother, Charlotte, he was still unable to read or write, but he was a kind boy who got along well with the neighbor's son, who was also developmentally a bit slower. Garrett would frequently sleep under the football stands at his high school just to avoid going home because of the abuse. He would stay at his neighbor's house when he could and crash on their couch. 
By 14, he had been suspended from school multiple times for fighting, and not surprisingly, had fallen into drinking and frequent drug use, likely to escape the torturous life that he was living. And his neighbor, she talks about in the documentary how she wasn't aware of how bad he had it over there, just that sometimes he would come over and he would ask to stay the night and sleep on the couch. And as long as his mom knew where he was, she really didn't mind, but she had no idea that all of that was going on there. Garrett had been arrested before, but not for anything violent. He was arrested for vandalism and his prints were on record already with the police department making it easy to compare his prints to those found at the scene. The murder weapon that had been recovered, a knife outside of the convent, while it looked similar to other knives in the Garrett household, it didn't have any prints from Garrett on it whatsoever. Sister Benz had no prints from him on her either. No prints of him on her body at all. There were, however, prints on the back of her headboard and one found on a bent butter knife that was underneath Sister Benz's bed. This butter knife had zero blood on it whatsoever and was completely unrelated to the murder. Why were his prints in the room then? Johnny went over to the convent often to go talk to the nuns, to look at the paintings, to hold the relics, to help them with odd jobs, and had even helped them move all of their furniture into the convent just days before. So of course his prints would be all over it. And this could have been verified. Admittedly, he had also stolen from them in the past, But rape and murder? Absolutely not. On November 9th, 1981, Garrett was arrested for the theft of a pickup truck, but his mom, Charlotte, would soon receive a phone call from her sister, stating that it was all over the news that they had arrested someone for the death of the nun who had been killed, and it looked like they wanted Johnny for it. The police claimed to have got a confession out of him within an hour of his arrest, While they were careful to record them reading Garrett's Miranda rights to him, they failed to record his confession. Isn't that convenient? And when they gave him his eight-line confession to sign, he refused to, claiming he didn't do it and there's no way he would sign it. He refused to admit that he even confessed to begin with. His mother insisted that his confession was false, if it had even happened, and that's why he wouldn't sign the written one. Most of his neighbors and anyone who knew him personally refused to believe that he had killed the nun, but the DA was looking to put someone away for it, and in Texas, they were looking to put someone to death for it. This God-fearing Christian DA and the Bible Belt turned it into a war on the Catholic Church, which got the media involved and turned it into a circus. Garrett was quickly being turned into a villain, into the village idiot, some would say, with little to no evidence that he could have been at the scene of the crime when the sister was killed to begin with. The supposed confession, the one that conveniently was not recorded, the police alleged that Garrett told them he was high on two hits of acid and a bottle of Lord Kelvert, which is whiskey, when he climbed through the broken glass of the convent window and quietly slipped into Sister Benz's room on the second floor. In total darkness, he saw her looking like she was about to scream, so he beat her, raped her, and strangled her without waking anyone else up, and then left the same exact way that he had entered. Interestingly, though, even the physical evidence didn't support that this was possible. There was blood smear on the first floor exit door, the fire exit door frame, and there was no broken glass in the ground underneath the window outside, 
So there was no way that the killer left the same way that he had entered the building. There would have been glass on the outside as well. This confession was bogus. Even more interestingly, the attorney who showed up to represent Garrett had done so out of the blue. No one had called him to come represent Garrett. He just appeared and decided that he was going to. He also had no inclination to even entertain the fact that his client, his own client, was possibly innocent of the crime he was being accused of. And it's my understanding that at this time, defense lawyers would kind of hang out near the courthouse and they would pick up cases as they came in and that they could only accept a certain amount of money for them. So it kind of sounds like it didn't really matter what your record was. It was more that you would just take whatever case you could get, which made it more likely that they wouldn't really fight to defend anyone if they didn't feel like it was worth it because they weren't going to get compensated for it in the way that they felt they, they deserved. So he essentially told Garrett's mom that there wasn't really anything that he could do to help him, despite the fact that Garrett insisted, even at his arraignment, that he was innocent and that his confession was a lie one that the police department had made up and continued to tell. From the very beginning, it seemed that everything was being done to ensure a conviction would happen. Evidence like the vaginal samples conveniently disappeared from the medical examiner's office, and the judge appointed to the case, Judge George Dowlin, appointed an old friend of the DA's as Garrett's second defense attorney. Many felt that the medical examiner was basically sitting in the back pocket of the DA of Danny Hill, and losing the vaginal samples wasn't an accident, but rather one example of Dr. Ralph Erdman's dishonesty and desire to work in favor of the prosecution, despite his duty to remain unbiased. Don't worry, more will come out about him in the future. As it got nearer and nearer to Garrett's trial, he often told his mother that he rarely saw his attorney, Bill Coleus, or Phil Jordan. And in fact, Coleus had only met with Garrett prior to his trial one time. According to the FBI's assessment of the evidence sent to them, Garrett's clothes from the night of the murder had absolutely no blood on them whatsoever. None. Not even a speck. Not a drop. Sister Benz's room and body had no pet hair from Mr. Clyde, which would have guaranteed to have been on her and no fibers from Garrett's clothing or from his home, and none of his shoes matched the shoe print at the crime scene. Not only that, but none of them had any glass embedded into the soles, as they would have had if they had been used to step through the broken window and then back out of it. None of the knives in his house had blood on them, nor did they match the stab wounds on her body, and even the hair found in her mouth on her body didn't match Garrett's hair. The only prints that matched him were on the headboard and on the butter knife, and even then, those could have both been explained. Despite all of this evidence showing that it was nearly impossible for Garrett to have committed this crime, they convicted him anyway. His attorneys never brought it to the attention of the court that he had been in the convent multiple times, and they didn't even attempt to hire an investigator to look into the case from Garrett's side of things. They did request a change of venue due to the media outrage over the case, but it doesn't sound like they really fought for it. And while prominent members of the legal community agreed that the venue should be changed, Judge Dowlin refused. It keeps getting worse, I promise. Just when you think this poor kid, he can't have any more blows dealt to him. The priest from St. Francis Convent was never contacted by the investigators or by the DA, or even by Garrett's defense counsel. He was never asked to testify, and neither were any of the nuns, because it would have shown, beyond a shadow of a doubt, 
that he didn't do it. So Coleus and Philip failed to object to several jury members who shouldn't have been allowed to serve on the jury either. One had close ties to law enforcement, and another was a business associate of the county medical examiner, you know, the one who was in the pocket of the DA. A third had a connection to another judge in the area. Prior to his execution, Pope John Paul II asked the governor of Texas, Ann Richards, for clemency. She, in turn, gave Garrett a temporary reprieve, after which the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles met with the intention of deciding whether or not to commute Garrett's death penalty sentencing to a sentence of life in prison, as he was, after all, a juvenile when he was arrested for the crime. However, in a shocking 17-0 vote, his death penalty was upheld. The chills I have in saying that right now. The Pope wasn't the only one to speak up on Garrett's behalf. In January of 1992, just weeks before his scheduled execution, the Texas Bishops Against Execution published a statement saying that they believed a stay of execution should be granted to Johnny Frank Garrett. Their concerns were very clear. Garrett had been a juvenile at the time of the murder. There was evidence that he had sustained a brain injury during his childhood abuse. The fact that he was abused as a child in and of itself, and he struggled with drugs while incarcerated, received a diagnosis that, and then, I'm so sorry, he struggled with drugs, and then while he was incarcerated, he received a diagnosis that confirmed he was, quote, psychotic. Just remember, this is the 80s. Some of this medical terminology and psychological terminology was not quite exactly where it is today. They cited the Pope and his recommendation, the Voices of Amnesty International, the Franciscan Sisters of Mary Immaculate of Amarillo, and various other groups and individuals who believe that Garrett should not be executed. They went on to point out the fact that Garrett would be the third person to be executed in the state of Texas for a crime that was allegedly committed as a juvenile, and that there was yet to be any amount of evidence that suggested the death penalty even deterred violent crime and murder in Texas to begin with. The advocacy they provided on behalf of Garrett should have spoken volumes, as this was the very religious group that Sister Benz had been a servant to. They concluded their statement with a request for a new trial due to new evidence that could have exonerated Garrett altogether. But on February 11th, 1992, Johnny Frank Garrett was executed by lethal injection. His last meal, and I struggled with if this was even necessary to include in this episode, but I find it so sad and so innocent. His last meal was ice cream. It just breaks my heart that they put this boy at the time he was a man. He was 28 when he was executed, but he maintained his innocence the entire time he was incarcerated. He was not someone who was able to defend himself either mentally or Socioeconomically, he was at a huge disposition. Following his execution, one of the letters he had written became public. This letter was written to society, and he wanted to let the general public know that they had let him down, and the system had let him down. He called Coleus, quote, the people's lawyer, as he did whatever the media pushed him to do, whatever the general public expected, not what his client, Garrett, needed from him. He let them know that he had requested different representation, an attorney named Thomas Priola, someone who had grown up with his parents, who knew both his mom and his birth father, but the police department ignored his request. 
and insisted that Coleus was his counsel. He requested a man by the last name of Bisbee and was again told no. Twelve years after the execution of Johnny Frank Garrett, DNA was taken from what was actually preserved from the crime scene and tested. The DNA matched a career criminal, Leoncio Perez Rueda, the same one who was a person of interest before he was ruled out, and they pinned it on Garrett. He was also easy to find, as he was in prison for the rape and murder of Bryson. Yes, the elderly woman who initially the DA and investigators suspected had been killed by the same person who killed Benz. He had even admitted to raping and killing a nun in the past. But it's not over yet. And despite all of this, Garrett was never exonerated, even after death with all of this new information. And it's sickening, really. Some say that he got his own revenge from beyond the grave, though, with what has come to be known as the Johnny Frank Garrett curse. In the final letter that I mentioned earlier, Garrett declared that everyone involved in the corrupt system that put him away for a crime he didn't commit, that executed him for a crime he didn't commit, they would get theirs in the end as well. In the years following his execution, one juror, Novella Sumner, fell down a flight of stairs and died a few days later of complications. Juror Nathan Shackelford's daughter died from an accidental gunshot wound to the head, and his sister was killed by a drunk driver. Trial lawyer Bill Coleus died from pancreatic cancer. His first appellate lawyer, Bruce Sadler, and post-conviction trial judge, Judge Sam Kaiser, both developed the same type of leukemia, and Judge Kaiser died after being cured. They had saved healthy bone marrow just in case the leukemia came back, and when the healthy ban- excuse me, but the healthy bone marrow actually disappeared from the hospital. One of the lead investigators, Officer Walt Yerger, died of leukemia too. NBC reporter affiliated with the case, she died in an airplane crash while covering another story. And the medical examiner, good old Ralph Erdeman's medical license was revoked for falsifying autopsies, several felonies, shocking. His wife died of pancreatic cancer while he was in prison. The psychic's husband, Eugene Patterson, was found dead in his vehicle with no cause of death determined. However, I'd be interested to know who the coroner was in this situation. I'm just saying. Jailhouse snitch, Watley, testified against Garrett for a reduced sentence himself, later committed suicide. Garrett's school teacher, Carol Moore, testified against him at trial and later took her own life as well. Sheriff Jimmy Boydston developed leukemia and passed away from that too. And Danny Hill, the notorious DA, took his own life and sadly his daughter died a few years later. Jeff Blackburn, another appellate attorney, suffered multiple tragedies following Garrett's execution when his wife took her own life and their son was then accidentally locked inside of a hot vehicle and suffered permanent brain damage. Ann Richards, former Texas governor, died from esophageal cancer after beating cancer a previous time. I mean, I get that as people age, they die, and sometimes from cancer, and leukemia, and a whole slew of other causes, but 15 people all related to the trial, and that many suicides and painful deaths, I would at least call that eyebrow raise worthy. I struggled to believe that a nun would be satisfied with the way that this trial played out, especially when she knew this person who was put to death for her death, something he didn't do. 
this is one instance where I'm able to find some comfort in knowing that he gets to be whole on the other side and free of the abuse and the pain that he suffered on earth. So what do you think? Curse or no curse? I think a lot of those people involved deserved at least a little bit of that curse. There's also a movie that came out that was loosely based on this crime and on Johnny Frank Garrett. And I can't even imagine. It it came out in 2016, years after they found information that could have the potential to exonerate him. And they still created this character around him and his alleged crimes that we kind of can see very clearly he didn't do. It just, it's sickening. I I don't like it. So look forward at least to, I have no beautiful segue for that one. It's just the whole case is sick. Sister Benz's murder was never put to justice for her murder and an innocent boy lost his life and his poor family couldn't even really do anything to help. They were at a loss. So folks come back next week for more murder and mediumship or come see us Wednesday morning for another installment of coffee and conjurings and keep sending in your own spooky stories, especially now that spooky season's here. Y'all take care of yourself and I'll see you soon.